Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanko and Scott Park. Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I'm your co-host, Scott Parkin in Berkeley, California. And as always, I'm joined by uh, Bob Basenko in Houston, Texas right now. And welcome to Taylor Swift's favorite podcast. Yep. Yeah. She We're, said that after the Super Bowl year. Yeah. I think I saw a tweet about it. I think I saw yeah. a tweet about it. Uh, well, today. The 50s. Yeah. yeah. Hey, we'll take them. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, today we're going to be talking about, we actually haven't done an episode on this in a minute, but today we're going to be talking about uh, Israel's continued attack and ethnic cleansing and genocide or whatever you want to call it on Gaza. Uh, joining us is our old friend, uh, Joshua Frank. Josh, welcome to the Green and Red podcast. Uh, thanks for thanks for having me back. Yep. Uh, Josh is a journalist and the managing editor at counterpunch.org. He's also author of Atomic Days uh, and co-editor of uh, a couple of other books, including Red State Rebels, Hopeless, and The Big Heat, uh, all, all with Jeff Sinclair, I believe. Um, and then uh, he just recently published an article uh, which made the rounds called uh, Making Gaza Unlivable. And so that's a little bit of what we're going to be talking about today. Israel's you know, attack on Gaza has led left at least 30,000 dead at this point. Uh, this week, we saw the Israelis uh, begin bombing uh, in Rafah, which is like one of the last uh, sort of bastions where we're seeing a lot of people who are displaced by this attack in Gaza have been congregating. Um, but uh, Josh's article is actually about how Israel has been weaponizing environmental destruction against the Palestinians. And so maybe, Josh, actually just talk to us a little bit about how Israel has been weaponizing environmental destruction against the Palestinians uh, during this attack and, and perhaps previously as well. Yeah, um, uh, my piece basically really focused on what's happening in Gaza. Obviously, a lot of this is applicable to um, the West Bank as well, although obviously it's not under the same kind of bombardment at the moment. But uh, I think when we talk a lot about the, the genocide that's taking place in Gaza, which is obviously very, very well documented, um, and the impacts on people, we haven't really addressed those environmental impacts of what's happening and, and how that's part and parcel for um, the, the lives that the Gazans are, you know, they're dealing with right now. Um, and so I, I really looked at sort of three things. Uh, one, obviously, the bombing campaigns and what that's doing and the destruction to uh, cities, to homes. Um, and then also I, I looked at sort of the historic um, decimation of olive groves, uh, which uh, are, are, you know, cultural heritage of Palestinians, um, also a, in, in, in Gaza, um, a big uh, part of the economy, uh, which we can talk about a little bit. Um, and then and thirdly, I talked about an, another aspect of this campaign, which is to flood all of these tunnels, um, primarily in the north. Uh, and there's precedent for the destruction that this will cause. Um, Egypt uh, flooded tunnels about 10 years ago, uh, and there's a lot of documentation about what that flooding of seawater into those tunnels to destroy alleged Hamas 
you know, um, smuggling routes at that point. Uh, what that did to agricultural lands um, and, and that kind of thing. So I sort of looked at it holistically of, of um, and putting it in perspective of like, this is not just these individual campaigns, but a larger strategy on Israel's part to deem Gaza unlivable. Um, and I think it goes along with a lot of the rhetoric that we're hear hearing out of the Israeli government. And since the, the since October seventh, and even prior that, um, you know, the the plan is ultimately to move Gazans out of uh, of the Gaza Strip. Um, now, whether or not that happens, you know, there is some pushback now on the international level. Obviously, the ICJ's case. Uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, but also, news just came out today that, and I don't know if we even if you've even heard about this yet, but um, reports are coming out of Egypt that they're building a buffer zone in the Sinai Peninsula, um, which would uh, allegedly make room for um, Egypt to receive Gazans and move them out of the south and into Egypt, into the desert, uh, which would be a crime, obviously. Uh, but if we've if we're to believe the rhetoric of the Israeli government, this is what they've been talking about the whole time. Um, and we also know they have nowhere else to go back to in, in the north. Um, Seventy percent of their homes have been destroyed. So looking at the environmental impacts of this, I think, are important to understanding the complexities of it and also the challenges that lie ahead if they are to return. Um, what are they returning to? Uh, um, the aquifers are being completely polluted and destroyed. Um, even before uh, October 7th, uh, over 90% of the water was contaminated in the drinking water supplies. The, the sewage systems in the Gaza Strip are completely um, broken. This is before October 7th. I mean, the conditions before the war broke out, if, you, if we can call a genocidal assault a war, um, were horrific. And now it's just been exponentially made worse. Yeah, the, you start with the, by talking about flooding the, the tunnels and so on. But it, I was surprised. I had no idea how much bigger it was than that. And I think it began a couple of years ago with like kind of salinization, salination in the in the tunnels, which kind of, you want to explain how that they did that? Yeah. So, I mean, right now the plan is, and, and apparently they've already started to do this in the, in the North. Um, when I was writing the article, it was sort of in the test phase, but they set up these uh, module pumps along this, the coast um, that's, transporting seawater into these underground tunnels um, to destroy the tunnels. Uh, what that salt uh, concentration does um, is eventually permeate the groundwater supplies, uh, including them, and, and as well as making the um, agricultural land, and most of the agricultural land in Gaza is in the north, uh, making that, that land uh, will be infertile because it'll be too salinated. So, that's the big fear um, among people keeping a close eye on this. The other fear is that uh, the the water itself in the Mediterranean is very polluted in that area because of the the sanitation being destroyed, um, the the sewer being destroyed. So a lot of that stuff has been historically just dumped right into the without being treated into the Mediterranean. Um, so that's another problem is that they're they're pumping this water in that's polluted to begin with and you know, has is, is has high salt content, um, and so they they're really fearful that um, the 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 little agriculture that they were able to have is going to be destroyed, which is even going to make it harder to to live. Um, and then on top of that, when the the ground as as we've kind of noticed down here in Southern California with all the rain we had last week, um, 
you know, hillsides collapse and, and we have those kind of problems. Well, in, in Gaza, it's going to make it really, really difficult if the ground is unstable to rebuild, uh, which could be also part of Israel's strategy is, is to, to make that ground so unstable that they can't rebuild in those areas that have been destroyed. You know, I noted that there was a stat, uh, there was a UNICEF report in 2019 that 96% of water from Gaza's soil aquifer is unfit for human consumption. And so right. it, it seems like, you know, part of the Israeli strategy here, it's not just incidental, is to, you know, make this a, make it unlivable. Although there, there are a lot of stories about how the Israelis plan to like have settlers move into Gaza, the, the way in which they've been doing it in the West Bank and other places. But mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, the intentionality, like what is, what, yeah. how, you know, how intentional a, a, a strategy is this? Uh, I think the evidence is just overwhelming that this has been the game plan from the get-go and October 7th has been used as an excuse to destroy Gaza. I mean, I think at the highest levels of the Israeli government, they knew that they're really never going to eliminate Hamas because Hamas is an ideology and it's it's a movement. Um, they can, you know, her, you know impact its uh, military capabilities. They can set it back, but they're not going to, they're not going to, um, stop Hamas uh, from spreading and the hatred towards Israel is only going to be um, exponentially worse after this, of course. Um, so I think that the intentionality of what they're doing in Gaza um, and the amount of, of, if you want to call it a retaliation, of how disproportionate that's been, has been intentional. I mean, when I wrote that piece, and I think the numbers have changed somewhat since then, uh, there was, you know, 29,000 air to surface musicians were fired. 40% of those were, you know, unguided bombs. Those are meant to destroy and, and not are, are indiscriminate in what they destroy. 70% uh, of all Gazans homes, as I, as I said earlier, have been destroyed. Um, nearly all the hospitals have been, are not, are not functioning. Most of them are, are totally destroyed most of the schools are now destroyed. Of course, now they're going after um, the United Nations uh, efforts there as well. I think it's a systemic and systematic um, genocide and ethnic cleansing that has been going on for over 75 years. And the attacks of October 7th, the failure of the Israeli government to respond to those. Um, and we can get into those details too. There's a lot of fishy stuff, of course. Uh, but I think they saw it as an opportunity, much like the U.S. saw 9-11 as an opportunity to expand in the Middle East. I think that, you know, we, we've heard these comparisons that this was Israel's 9-11, you know, but the, the reality is that the reaction to this is, is more of an, of an apt, you know, metaphor for, for what, what's going on. Um, and I think that that's only expanding. And I think it's really important to also um, know that this is a nuclear conflict as well. Uh, Israel is nuclearly, they're, they're armed. Uh, we know that this is expanding regionally. Just today, they struck uh, southern Lebanon, um, some Hezbollah targets there. We know what's happening with the Houthis. Um, things are expanding and, and getting more and more dangerous as this drags on. Um, and I don't think there's any turning back. And we know this, the Biden administration is totally, completely culpable and whatever sort of pressure they're allegedly putting on the, the Netanyahu and the Israelis has, you know, isn't being, isn't very effective. 
uh, which makes you wonder if they're putting any pressure on at all or if it's just a political ploy. Um, so I think that this is systemic and I think that we're, we're, we haven't seen the worst yet, unfortunately. Let me uh, follow up, ask you a little bit of the, the munitions. Um, yeah. You know, in Vietnam, with stuff like Agent Orange and cluster bombs, there's still a, 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 a significant consequences are visible. And I know in, in Gaza, we've seen white phosphorus and um, mm -hmm. cluster bombs already used. Are there other, you know, in addition to the immediate destruction, which we're seeing every day, this is horrific. Are there any, you know, kind of other well, the, the, things the that maybe long term yeah. that, that we don't talk about a lot is, you know, of course, the destruction of the buildings, but what that creates as far as um, air quality. Yeah. Um, and I yeah. compare it to the, the World Trade Centers, the, yeah. the towers that that went down in 9-11. And the lingering um, health effects, obviously, on the people in in that part of Manhattan, and also um, the impacts uh, on air quality going forward. I, it was like about a year, even after 9/11, the air quality in Lower Manhattan was was horrible. Um, and now I can't imagine how bad it is in Gaza. I mean, we can't measure these things right now, of course, right? Because we know we don't know exactly what's going on. But those impacts have to be far, far greater. And that's not even taking into account the um, leftover debris. Um, we know that these bombs um, are, you know, Gaza is a testing ground, right? I mean, Gaza is a testing ground for Western arms manufacturers. Uh, and so we're, we're not, we don't know exactly what's being used in some cases, but we know the impacts are horrific. And it's going to take decades to really not only rebuild, but to understand the true toll that this has taken on on the region, which the the impacts of the the bombs and these kind of things. We talk about uh, the plans for Israelis to move into Gaza. Well, that that might be a plan for some, but what are they moving into? I mean, it is a destroyed land, and and it's going to take billions and billions of dollars to rebuild it, even back to what it was before. Let alone, um, you know, these new sort of fancy buildings on the coast or something. Um, so it's just, it's a horrible situation. And I think, um, we haven't seen the worst of it yet. And I think the, the estimates of what's coming out of this destruction are, are low ball estimates. Um, they're very conservative estimates. I think it's much horrific and much worse than, than we can even, even predict. Just to go back to something you mentioned before about the olive trees that, you know, I, I think mm -hmm. in your article, you talk about, it's like 10% of the, the Gazan economy. Um, you know, how is this? You know, this is an example of also the Israelis trying to, you know, destroy the Palestinians to be able to have a, a you know, viable economy. And so it's like, in, in, a, in a sense, it's also not only environmental warfare, but it's also economic warfare. I'm just wondering if you could comment on that. Yeah. Um, it, and it's also cultural warfare. And, you know, the, the olive tree and what, what, it, what it represents the Palestinians um, is, it's, it's, it, has, it, has, it has a very deep history in uh, Palestinian culture. Um, since 1967, is, Israel has uprooted 800,000 native, uh, native trees, Palestinian and olive trees. And, it, and it's not just this, these trees that are sort of like monocrops. I mean, these are forests. They have many other trees are in these areas like buckhorn and piney hawthorn and almond trees and Aleppo pine and fig trees. Um, they're, they're ecosystems. Um, they are a home to many different types of birds, the green finch, um, Eurasian jay, and other birds and other migrating birds. Uh, so these are, you know, these are forests. 
um, that are cultivated forests than have been um, historically cultivated. But uh, in the West Bank, they've been torn down to build settlements. Um, in Gaza, they've been destroyed uh, for sometimes no reason at all, other than to destroy, like you said, to destroy the, the you know part of the economy. And the harvest season for the olives uh, usually takes place in the fall. So that didn't happen this year. Um, I mean, talking about the economy in Gaza right now seems kind of ridiculous, right? Because there is no economy. It's completely destroyed. Um, but before October 7th, um, olive harvest made up about 10% of the entire uh, economy of, of the Gaza Strip. So, you know, there's, there was thousands of farmers that harvested these olive groves. And so it's a big part of their income. Um, and a lot of them, you know, that I, you know, have in the, in the article talk about not knowing if they're, first of all, if they're ever able to go back to these areas. And secondly, what, if they do go back, if those olive groves are even there. And I think it's just, um, as anybody that's even been a part of any sort of, uh, environmental movement in the United States or in the Western world and, and. The relationship that we have to forests here and, and, and fighting to protect them, I think it's really a similar feeling that Palestinians have, even on a much, much deeper um, scale uh, to, the, to the olive groves. And I believe Israel knows that, you know, I mean, I think part of them destroying those olive groves is to destroy part of that Palestinian history as well. Um, earlier, you, you'd mentioned white phosphorus. In addition to being deadly to humans doesn't that kind of have an afterlife and seep into the absolutely the, yeah. yeah and it lingers for a long time it, it's linked to all kinds of bad <clears throat> stuff um it's also illegal to be using white phosphorus i mean talking about the war crimes that israel has committed i mean it, it would take more than a podcast yeah, they were using white phosphorus and cast lead and uh what, what the 2014 went to so yeah this is kind of what they, they use they, they they part of their, their yeah. yeah so yeah. um it's uh <clears throat> It, it will have great impacts. Um, you know, parsing all of these things out is is difficult, I think, once once they get in there and can and assess it. And then when they do get in there and assess this stuff, uh, I'm sure it's going to be whitewashed, right? I mean, who's going to be in there? It's going to be the Israeli security apparatus and they're, you know, they're not going to let in independent observers, I'm sure, um, especially if, with their efforts to get kick out the UN now. Um, so I don't know if we'll ever really know the long-term impacts, but we do know that white phosphorus um, has lingering impacts on groundwater supplies, on soil composition, and other things in, in where it's been used in the past. My next question, uh, because you know I campaign against fossil fuels, there's, but and this is particularly relevant living here in the kind of San Francisco Bay area, is that you know there's there's actually a new campaign that started here called No Fuel for Apartheid, which is targeting Chevron, uh, you know Chevron probably since 2020 has been like kind of building, you know, been working towards like an energy hub to a couple of gas fields off the coast of Gaza and also in Northern Gaza. And so uh, I'm, I'm kind of curious, you know, what your thoughts are on how, you know, you know, Western oil companies are basically like seeking, you know, seeking, you know, like we see weapons manufacturers taking advantage of this moment, mm -hmm. bragging about it on, you know, earnings calls or whatever. But we're also, you know, the CEO of Chevron actually did that last fall as well. And I'm I'm just, you know, this is also like a, an environmental impact as well. And I'm, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I am. Um, you know, I think for 
the fossil fuel industry, this is potentially um, an opening for them to get into the into the region more so than they already were. I mean, I think it's probably more likely that you're going to see um, oil drilling off the coast and in, in, in the Gaza Strip before you're going to see any sort of uh, building uh, for settlements, um, just because obviously the it's it's much easier to get in there and, and harvest oil than it is to, to build and um, clean out aquifers. And of course, we know the in oil industry is very good at polluting aquifers too, so it will just uh, make it a dead zone. Um, you know, I don't know a lot about, uh, I know some of the, I've seen some of the sort of overarching plans for some of these ventures, um, of course, pipelines and other things through the Gaza Strip, uh, but I don't know at the moment what those are looking like um, and and what's going to happen here in the near future. And I think there's probably a lot of debate about that too, because there's been this effort and this push uh, to and even Israel said, well, we're going to move some of these Palestinians out of the south and back into the north. And so I think that complicates the picture a little bit. Um, and I think that the, you know, going back to what I was talking about earlier, I do think that there has been some pushback about these things. So uh, the, I think the talk has been sort of muted um, about those long term plans, but I think it's definitely part of it. And that, and and as we know, the oil industry is doesn't care about human rights or any kind of environmental impacts there, especially especially companies like Chevron. Especially companies like Chevron. Um, I, I didn't read the entire ICJ complaint. I didn't watch it all that clip. Were Were any of these kind of environmental issues brought up in, in the in the charges against Israel? Because the um, Vietnam War, the kind of eco side was was yeah, not not the eco side was not yeah. brought up. Um, yeah. But some of the impacts, I think, of the eco side that are yeah. related, right? I mean. Um, Eighty five percent of the population of Gaza, probably more now, is facing starvation. Those those sorts of things um, are, uh, you know, part of that environmental impact and and part of destroying agricultural land. Right. Uh, so if you have if Gaza's are facing starvation now, they can't go back to a place that has food because there's no nowhere to grow food. There's no access to food, um, which it makes them entices them to leave Gaza, which I think is a big part of the plan. And as we've seen with some of the prominent voices on social media in Gaza, like Motaz, right, who has something like 17 million followers on Instagram, more than more than President Biden, um, he he exited, he got out, and they wanted him out of there. And part of that was obviously a threat to his life. Um, and he's not the only journalist. We obviously, we know the war on journalists there, um, but. I think part of that is because the rest of it's it's not livable, right? So it's it's enticing to leave to save your own life, and I think that the the state that we're in right now and that that they're in, especially in the south, is that there's nowhere to go. Um, being forced into the desert and the Sinai, um, unfortunately, will start looking good to them um, the further along they go, and the and the more destruction that happens in their own backyards there in Rafa in particular right now. Are we are they doing anything like this in the West Bank or any other Palestinian areas? Um, well, I mean, we do know in the West Bank there's been horrific settler violence. Um, and we know that uh, the sort of the southern part of the West Bank, which is drier, um, there's some some the most vulnerable areas of the West Bank are sort of in the southern part of the West Bank. And those are the areas where there's sort of like I don't want to say nomadic peoples, but 
people that still live off the land that herd sheep and other things. Um, so they're prime target for settler violence. Uh, we, we know obviously as well that olive groves are continuing to be burned and ripped up and scorched, um, sometimes in the name of so you know security, other times to build roads, um, walls, to build new settlements. So it is still a, it, it, very similarly to what's happened in Gaza over the years. It's happening today in the West Bank as well. And of course, they live under a completely different sort of military occupation than Gaza did before October 7th. Um, they're you know going through security checkpoints day in and day out, um, living in an, uh, you know, a segregated region of apartheid. Um, so getting cut off from their agricultural land, uh, those sorts of things uh, have happened and, and are continuing to happen as well. You are listening to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red podcast. Please check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're watching this on YouTube, please hit that subscribe button. And if you're listening to us on your favorite audio platform, please give us a rate and review. It helps us with the algorithms. And if you really like what you're hearing, please go to our Patreon, patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast and become a patron or make a one-time donation by going to our website at greenandredpodcast.org and hitting that support button. You know, with regard to, to public health, you've already kind of talked about after what four months now, how, how serious it is, respiratory illnesses and mm-hmm. diarrhea, children are dying. I mean, what, what's, and that's only going to get worse, right? No clean water. Yeah, I know it's going to get worse as they, they make it harder and harder for medical teams to get in there and help them. I mean, um, part of defunding, uh, you know, the efforts of the United Nations there is to make those matters even worse, right? Um, some of the only functioning medical facilities in Gaza right now are run by the UN. Um, so, uh, the, you know, the doctors that are coming in out of that, coming out of that, and talking about their experiences there and how horrible they are, that's only going to, you know, so only going to get worse, um, which is another um, reason for them to leave, right? I mean, I think that's part of the plan. Um, we. They've given some estimates of, you know, asthma, what's what's happening. I think a lot of that has to do with um, the detonation of buildings um, and the dust and the lingering sure. sort of toxins in the air. Uh, it's something like 10% of um, Gazans now are, are dealing with asthma that weren't prior to October 7th. Of course, diarrhea is rampant. Um, other waterborne illness, illnesses are, are going crazy. Um, it's it's a total catastrophe, um, and it is a preventable one, obviously. But we're so far along now, and and I don't think we even really have a true understanding of how bad the situation is there on a, on a public health level. Um, and another, uh, similarly to evaluating sort of the environmental assessment later on, looking at these public health impacts later on is going to be really interesting. Um, and I think we're you know the numbers of of those that are going to develop long-term severe impacts, not even talking about mental health, of course, um, just other health issues is going to be uh, horrific. Yeah. I mean, 50, 60 years later in Vietnam, you still have um, entire orphanages for um, Agent Orange babies and things like that without arms and stuff like that. So yeah. Yeah. The same um, in Iraq. And, and, and of course, on, on another, uh, on the human health side as well, I mean, there's, we already know the death toll and how high it potentially is, but how many others are uh, amputees or coming out of this with other um, ailments is, you know, unfathomable, really. 
and the bodies in the rubble. Uh, yeah, and then all yeah. those that are, are, you know, you can't count because they're buried. Yeah. You know, one thing, one of the things that strikes me is always the the sort of environmental impacts and the environmental health impacts are always the sort of like after the fact mm -hmm. sort of conversation, like thinking about Iraq or thinking about Agent Orange in Vietnam or things like that. Are, are there any agencies or institutions which are talking about the the sort of environmental destruction being weaponized by the Israelis at this point, or is it it's going to be like you know the no pun intended the dust will settle and then we start talking about the you know the long-term health effects of some of this environmental destruction and and then i have a sort of follow-up question yeah i mean historically when we look at like kuwait and the burning of oil fields and these sorts of things um depleted uranium uh of of soldiers that were cleaning up things cleaning up tanks um in the battlefield in iraq those sorts of things a lot of these a lot of these studies come out later i mean when it comes to um, environmental impacts, these are epidemiological studies in some cases. Sometimes they're logic, you know, they're like long, long studies because a lot of the impacts linger and don't show up till years later. Um, it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of resources. And historically, in this country at least, uh, and in Britain as well, a lot of those studies aren't funded properly or they lose funding and it's hard to track these people. They get lost in the system. Um, I'm talking about soldiers in particular in this in, in that case, um, which is obviously people that are being impacted in, in Gaza as well are Israeli soldiers too, and the, a lot of them young young men. Um, so no, I mean it's hard. It's really impossible to track some of this stuff right now because it's so fluid, and I don't think that the governments have an incentive. Israel definitely doesn't have an incentive to to track the destruction because it doesn't doesn't bode well for them. Um, the United Nations kind of can keep an eye on this and they do monitor things, but they only can do as much as they're allowed to do. And we know Israel is not going to allow them to do what they need to do in order to get a, a you know, a full picture of what's happening. Um, my, my other question was, you know, what sort of response have you gotten from telling this story? I mean, it's not, I, I think Kate Aronoff had a, a story around climate environment around Chevron um, last fall in the New mm -hmm. Republic. I haven't actually seen too much reporting on this. I'm kind of curious about the sort of response you've been getting from I, I, Yeah. Um, it's been, you know, I think it, it made it made the rounds. Um, I've talked to a lot of people about it. Um, and I think it's been in the conversation. It just hasn't been maybe put together in a way where it's all there and tied into the the genocide itself. Because uh, the the human toll is just so horrific that that becomes sort of the focus. Um, and so trying to tie that in and looking at it as sort of this more complex thing that's happening um, and especially going forward. Uh, but um, yeah, anyway, yeah, I think it's been, it's been well-received, but it's still, since we're in the middle of this um, right now, you know, stopping the, the bombing of Gaza not only because we obviously want to save lives first and foremost, but because we we need to ensure that this um, destruction stops for environmental impact reasons as well. I'm going to uh, shift topics a little bit. It's actually still going to be around Gaza, but it's going to be a little bit about some things that have been happening in the U.S. Uh, just last week, it turns out that a uh, assistant district attorney in, at, in San Francisco actually sent off some emails to uh your your publication uh counterpunch 
uh, Michael Minasini, I guess that's how you pronounce his name, had some uh, some choice words for Counterpunch because you you know published quite a uh, quite a number of articles around the the ethnic cleansing and genocide in Gaza. I wonder if you could just actually maybe just fill us in on that a little bit as well. Well, yeah. So uh, we. I don't know exactly what I think the first email we received from him was in late January. Um, apparently he was on our email list and has been receiving our, our little newsletter uh, updates that we send out our blasters. We call is he, a, is he a donor? Uh, <laughs> I don't believe he's a donor. Um, and, I, <laughs> and he won't be anymore. <laughs> <laughs> he won't be anymore. Maybe, maybe some cool. kind of settlement will come out of this, but no. Um, and I think that first email, he, you know, he gave us that, regular spiel that we're anti-Semitic because we're criticizing Israel and everything we publish is garbage because we, you know, we can't be taken seriously, blah, blah, blah. Um, didn't really, um, whatever, you know, I think what was startling was that he sent it from his work email address, which is a government email address. I mean, we're used to nut jobs sending us stuff, of course, you know, death threats and other things too, especially since October 7th, even our our, uh, our our site was attacked right after um, October 7th because we were immediately trying to stop the um, incursion into Gaza. Uh, so we're, we're, you know, we're used to this stuff, but coming from an assistant district attorney in San Francisco was kind of alarming. Um, and we talked to a lawyer after that one was sent to us and we just thought we'd sit and wait and see what happened next. Um, fast forward a couple of weeks and he sent off another uh, email to us. And this time uh, he repeated some pretty horrible anti-Arab rhetoric. Um, and so at that point I thought, you know, how, what's the best way to like push back against this guy? And I decided to post his email to make them public. I thought about writing an article about it, but I said, eh, let's just let social media do its thing. You know, I don't have the time for this. Um, he is not really worth my time, but uh, it did get picked up in the San Francisco Standard uh, and had a reporter did a pretty good piece on him. And in doing so, um, uh, I think put pressure on the DA's office to investigate him. Um, I don't know where that stands at the moment with him. Um, he is not part of the team that's prosecuting the Bay Bridge, I think 78, is that what they're called? Um, those that shut down the Bay Bridge, but the office is. And so I think um, it shows that the anti-Arab um, sentiment within the DA's office in San Francisco is pretty strong. If this guy doesn't have, you know, feels like he can send off an email from his public government uh, account. I mean, this is a guy, he was also the the mayor of Martinez as the well. The vice mayor, I think. Vice mayor of Martinez. So, you know, he's been, he's been in the public life for a while. You'd think... Um, he would, you know, have some scruples or at least send, send us some hate mail from his personal uh, email account. Right. Um, so we'll see. Yeah, we'll see what see what happens. I think that he needs to be removed from his from his post. He certainly shouldn't be on any cases that involve hate crimes or free speech or, um, you know, protests of any any sort. So I think his job is done there and I think he should retire. So hopefully there'll be some pressure on him to do so. It says a lot about the. Uh coastal elites too you know in san francisco you have this guy and pelosi saying the fbi should start surveilling people and, um 
you know, yeah. by, you know, a, a crowd. Well, I, mean, you know, and I started, I started thinking about it too. It's not just that he has these sentiments, right. Which I think a lot of people have few share them publicly. He did in this case, sent it to us, but I think it was also an attempt to silence a media organization. Um, you know, getting an email of a media organization, getting an email from a prosecutor's office, um, calling us out for something that they don't agree with is, uh, I think, a pretty scary precedent. Outrageous. Um, and, and one that I think, depending on what happens in November, I mean, obviously it, it could get worse um, as we go forward, um, the crackdown on free speech. Um, but I think that this is a, you know, this is a a, a warning shot in some yeah. ways. Well, I mean, people have been fired for tweeting sympathy for Palestinians, you know, consistently for the last Absolutely. four months. Absolutely. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, but I I will say the response <laughs> once those emails were made public uh, have been nothing but supportive of Counterpunch. Um, and I think he's feeling the pressure for sure. And I don't I don't believe we'll be hearing from him anytime soon. <laughs> You know, think a lot about institutions and, you know, agencies and things like that, how, you know, they're in, in many ways they're allowed to get away with this, to have like anti-Arab sentiment is one thing, but then being able to go public with it, with, with your institutions, you know, on your institution server or whatever, is just like quite, quite well, amazing. I, I mean, I think that anti-Arab sentiment is, I mean, it's always been there, yeah. uh, but it's been uh, heightened ever since 9-11, right? I mean, I think that there's a lot of evidence that this type of anti-Arab sentiment in DA's office and prosecutors and, and the FBI and others uh, is part of their training <laughs> from day one. Um, and we're seeing this now 20, whatever, 22 years later, that it's still very prevalent there. Um, and that's pretty frightening. And I think it's, uh, you know, I think about a lot about a lot of the um, hate crimes against um Palestinian activists and others, and how when it happens, I mean, it happened, Bob, right? It happened in Houston a couple of weeks ago, right? Um, if that were a Jewish activist, a, a Zionist, I should say, uh, it'd probably still be front page news in New York Times. Yeah. Um, but the, what happened in Vermont, and, uh, you know, since they're Palestinian, since they're Arab, since they hold sentiments that aren't popular with the elite, uh, those kind of fall off the radar. Um, and that's unfortunate, but I think that's part of this bigger problem in our society as well is, is dehumanizing Palestinians and dehumanizing those of us who stand up for Palestinian rights. Um, and we're seeing that crack down on campuses, of course, and, and all over the place. Yeah, several universities have banned uh, groups like uh, Jewish Voice for Peace or Students for Justice in Palestine. And just, yeah. Uh, Meanwhile, yeah, the the public is is turning has turned against this war. Uh, yeah, we have cities all across the country passing resolutions, mm -hmm. the ceasefire resolutions, because they're they they're the heat is on, um, and the public is including outraged. San Francisco, by the way. Yeah, including San Francisco, um, and then Chicago down here in Long Beach, yeah. I mean, all over the place. Uh, so, meanwhile, you know the tide has shifted, um, and. As horrible as it is, and, and not knowing the future, what, what the future holds for Palestinians, never in the existence of the state of Israel has there been this much scrutiny of what they're doing on an international scale, um, day in and day out, documented on social media, documented um, in the news. I mean, even the New York Times is having to cover this stuff, right? Um, so I'm try I try to hold on to that. I try to hold on to the fact that 
I think that there's a great opportunity for a new anti-war movement. I don't think we're there yet. I'm very inspired by Jewish Voice for Peace and other anti-Zionists in the Jewish community, as well as our rank and file anti-war folks as well. Um, we We have a big opportunity to push back against U.S. empire and the apparatus that we support in Israel is part and parcel for that. Uh, and so I think there's just a, a really a great, a great opportunity to move this forward. And I'm inspired by that, despite the horror that we're witnessing. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And, you know, speaking of the Bay Bridge action, they actually did a blockade on the Golden Gate Bridge the, this today morning. Today I saw that. Yeah, yeah. In, in response to the Israelis bombing of, of Rafah. Well, we know we know the DA's office will be under scrutiny now if they're yeah. if they're, they're going to prosecute anybody. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Hopefully they'll keep that in mind. Um, I, I actually only have one question left, which is actually a little bit unrelated. I don't know if Bob has anything else. No, I'm good. Just a great article, I think. Uh, you know, I've studied wars kind of my whole life and this is one element that i think is not uh, really covered that you know i call an eco side but you see this in vietnam and korea just the consequence of the long-term impact unexploded bombing unexploded bombs and things like that so this is important to get out you know using food and water as a weapon yeah 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 it's yeah, the other yeah, day i was I think, actually i think in every genocide that um <clears throat> been documented a lot of these elements have been been in place yeah. I mean, I was teaching the other day about, you know, the origins of World War One and the, and the British blockade, which in 1914 was a violation of international law. You know, yeah. so it's been over 100 years and the U.S. is just, you know, uh, clearly, objectively re- rejected international norms. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, my my last question actually is unrelated. It's a little more of a environment climate question and mostly partially because you're you're based in Southern California, but we've been seeing these atmospheric rivers and, mm-hmm. you know, all over the state. Uh, so I think another one's coming today in the Bay Area. But, you know, Southern California, particularly the Los Angeles area where you are, has been hit particularly hard. And I'm just wondering, you know, I, I'd actually seen some posts from you with like some like pretty with the L.A. River, you know, almost looking like it was overflowing if it wasn't. And I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on that, since it's also a little bit of your beat as well. Yeah, Um Whew. Yeah, you know, I think, and we could probably do a whole show on this too. I want to put <laughs> yeah. that out there, but I, yeah. I thought I'd wrap up with that. <laughs> wrap up, wrap up with the river. Um, yeah, you know, I think what we're witnessing here is, you know, we're we're living in a world of extremes. We know that climate change is impacting so many different things in so many different ways. But one of the things that we kind of now know for for sure, I think, is that these weather events are are going to happen um maybe not more often but when they do happen they're going to be more ferocious and that's certainly the case with hurricanes um and uh, and i think in the case of the the um dry spells that we're going to experience droughts they're going to be more extreme um and then cases like the atmospheric river that just happened down here uh was more extreme um and i think i think this is sort of our new norm uh the infrastructure you know talking about the la river um Unfortunately, I think this sets back the idea of rewilding the LA River in some ways because now people are really afraid of flooding, um, and rightfully so, I suppose. Uh, but it did hold um, the flood infrastructure here did hold, but will it in the future? You know, if we get hit back to back, it could be much greater uh, the impacts of, of uh, atmospheric rivers or or storms down here. We have another one coming. 
don't know if it's an atmospheric river, but I think we're expecting a couple more inches this weekend. You know, and the, the ground is saturated. I mean, there's nowhere to go. Hillsides are collapsing. Um, a lot of the hills in and around LA are at, at great risk. I mean, they're having to evacuate some of the canyons because they're afraid of mud debris and, and flow and just... So I think this is our new norm. I mean, and of course, Southern California, as Mike Davis wrote about so eloquently and documenting the ecological disasters that we face, um, he predicted, you know, he was very prescient, right? I mean, he predicted that we're going to be living in a time where these things become more, more exacerbated. And I think we're in the middle of it right now. Um, so if we want to understand all of this, I think we go back and read Ecology of Fear and <laughs> at least for Southern California um, and see, see what we're in for. Yeah. yeah. Um, Josh, it's been great talking to you again today. Yeah, um, thanks so much. Thanks yeah. for having me. Appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Folks, if you like what you're hearing, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're watching this on YouTube, hit subscribe. If you want to make a donation, go to greenandredpodcast.org and hit that support button. How do we get one of those hats? We have to get a hat, yeah. All yeah, right. I was going to, let me finish the Patreon bit. Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, if you want to become a patron, go to patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast. And then we have hats for a $25 donation uh, and you just have to email greenredpodcast at gmail and we will get you one. Uh, and we have gotten a whole big order in. So we have many to give out. So folks, uh, please sign up and get a green and red podcast hat. And then also put it on social media and say, Hey, I love green and red podcast. That would help us a lot. too. Uh, also, uh, I came across two big boxes of my first book, Masters of War. So if anybody wants to make a donation to get a book, uh, you can do that too. Especially if you're interested in the JFK stuff, the, the loonies that we've been debating for a couple of years now. So, yep, uh, yep. lots and lots of swag and lots of drip, lots of lots of drip. Okay. Uh, everyone out there, go out and misbehave and make a lot of trouble, and we'll talk to you again real soon. <laughs> de la danza tuya mía levantarnos para decir ya vas ni África ni América Latina se suba un barro con casco con lápiz a patear el fiasco provocar un social terremoto en este charco